Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John O'Leary is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends. I am John O'Leary, and I am so happy to have you here joining me in this Live Inspired movement. On every Live Inspired podcast episode, I have amazing guests join me to share their story, their successes, their failures, their lessons, and yes, their life. Yes, you are absolutely going to hear profound and unforgettably inspiring stories. But more importantly, you will take away real ideas to apply in your own life. My friends, my goal is to have guests on this show that will inspire you to choose to wake up from accidental living so that you can do, be, achieve, and impact even more through your life. Or perhaps more simply said, so that you can live inspired. 30 years ago, and you know, I think anniversaries matter, so let's start here. About 30 years ago, January 18th, I was laying in a hospital room. I'd been in that room for one day. I'd been burned on 100% of my body the day before as I am enduring this as a child. I'm tied down to the hospital bed, wrapped from head to toe with bandages. Eyes are swollen shut, unable to speak, unable to do a thing. And into that room came the one voice, perhaps outside of my mom and dad's, that would wake me up. For me as a child, being a huge fan of the St. Louis Cardinals, the voice of the Cardinals, the voice of my childhood, was a guy named Jack Buck. Jack showed up that day, and even though he was told that the little boy was going to die, this announcer, who was extraordinarily busy, showed up the following day. And then he shows up the following day, and he shows up for the next five months as I recover from burns on 100% of my body. Then he has John O'Leary Day at the ballpark. He learns I can't write, which is why he began sending me baseballs with one carrot on the end of it. If you wanted a second baseball kid, you'd have to write a thank you letter to the man who signed the first. Uh, Well, desiring badly these baseballs, I went ahead, figured out a way to do it, put a pen between my two hands, and wrote a net note out to Jack Buck. The notes went back and forth. The balls came back and forth until by the end of 1987, Jack Buck had sent a little nine-year-old boy in a wheelchair in St. Louis, Missouri, 60 baseballs. Jack Buck taught me how to write again. It's, it's an amazing story. Then, as I graduate grade school, I get a note from him. As I graduate high school, he continues to encourage. And upon college graduation, Jack Buck shows up with a package and a note. The note read, kid, this means a lot to me. Hope it means a lot to you, too. Enjoy it's yours. I open up the package, look inside, and it is the crystal baseball that Jack Buck received when he went into the Hall of Fame. Jack Buck was a Hall of Fame announcer, but what made me love him, I think, so much and what made our community and those who heard his voice and knew his heart love him so much is he was a Hall of Fame man. Great guy, great man, not perfect, but also a great father, and he did a pretty darn good job raising today's guest. My guest today in studio is announcer It's father, it's husband, it's normal man, it's great leader, it's a wonderful voice. His name is Joe Buck. 
Joe Buck is a son of Jack, and for many, many years, Joe lived in some regards in the shadow of Jack's greatness. But after broadcasting almost two dozen World Series and Super Bowls, uh, Joe has now stepped out of that darkness. He's completely in the light, and now he's casting his own shadow, doing great works around the community, quietly and sometimes uh, with a microphone in hand. We're lucky to have Joe Buck with us in studio today. You're going to love his voice. You're going to love his charm. You're going to love his stories. You're also going to love learning more about his new book. It's called Lucky Bastard by Joe Buck. Bold title, by the way. Lucky Bastard. My life, my dad, the things that I'm not allowed to say on television. Uh, Leading into the interview, I had the opportunity to read this book ahead of time before it's even out. And my friends, Joe Buck is going to be sitting on couches all over network television over the next few weeks. He's going to be on Jimmy Kimmel. He's going to be on every show that you've ever bumped into late night or early morning. And yet the very first show that Joe Buck has sat down for is called Live Inspired. You, my friends, get to tune into today. You get to hear his heart. You get to unpack the lessons that he's learned, what it's meant for him, and what it means for each of us. So are you ready? You ready to live inspired? My friends, it is my honor to introduce to you announcer, parent, friend, Joe Buck. Joe Buck, husband, father of two, son of the legendary Hall of Fame announcer, Jack Buck, Emmy Award broadcaster of Major League Baseball, the National Football League, the PGA, and yes, even bass fishing tournaments. Welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thank you. I, You know, this is kind of surreal being here, considering our past and how it's intertwined and you know my dad and where my dad fit into your life and now I'm writing a book that involves my dad uh, quite a bit uh, and now here we sit so I'm glad that you read it I'm glad to answer any and all questions and try to sell a book or two (laughs) I think we will and I think we'll do it most effectively by just telling your story Uh, it, it turns out that we all have a story it's just usually not the one we're telling the world And Joe, I've always viewed you as being the Emmy Award broadcaster, beautiful wife, happy kids, beautiful life. And then I get a book sent to me in the mail. I forget the title of it. Will you remind me what you called it? Lucky Bastard. Lucky Bastard. It's an unusual title. Why'd you call it that? Because I am. I I am on so many different levels. I mean, I think the obvious one is that I get to do what I do. Um, And maybe the not so obvious Maybe it is, but that Fox came along when Fox came along. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing it. I mean, I, I didn't. I'm not so ego filled that I think that if Fox doesn't come along when it comes along, if my if I'm not born when I'm born, if I'm not of the right age and of the right time in my career, I'm not doing all these games. Mm. But but I was, and it did, and now here I sit on the heels of the 19th world series I've called. And again, it's not like uh, star search or the voice or American idol. I just happen to get in with the right network that keeps signing checks to cover these events. And I'm not downplaying the job I do, but if, it, if it's not me, it's countless other right. guys. And so I am extremely lucky and extremely lucky that my dad was who he was and and maybe even more so that my mom is who she is and as much that my kids are who they are and you know i so there's that side and then there's the kind of taking liberties with the word bastard which is i was born 
1969, after my dad left his first wife and six kids had met my mom, my mom was pregnant, they got married, and then I arrived. And so there's a literal and a figurative uh, definition to why the book's called that. But I think in every phase, I've, I've been lucky and you want to call lucky blessed. I'm happy to do that. And, and I am all of that. So in, in being a friend of your dad's and an admirer of your family's, I have always seen the kids lined up perfectly at the Hall of Fame address or at the funeral and everywhere in between. And it all looked perfect. And then you step way early through your story, Joe, and uh, it was not always perfect growing up. You were not invited into the other half of the Buck family. What's it like being a bastard child of Jack Buck and having him leave his first family for your mother? Well, at the time, I had no idea. I mean, I was a little boy, and I was, you know, my dad would take me uh, with him to drop off alimony checks. And, you know, that I didn't know any different. I didn't even know what it was. I didn't know what was going on until after I got older and I looked back. It's like, oh, that's what we were doing. Mm. <clears throat> he was he was dropping off checks, and and I don't know why I was there. I don't know if I was there to try to be the peacemaker or if, if because I was there it would be a little bit more civil than it might otherwise right. be. But having gone through it then X number of years later myself – and knowing how hard that is, not just on the first wife, but on that set of children, um, you know, I, I get it now. And and while I'm bringing up a lot of stuff here that maybe people weren't aware of mm-hmm. and educating people on a part of my life and my mom's life and my dad's life that they probably didn't know, um, I, it's also a way for me to kind of say to my half-brothers and sisters – I understand. Right. And and for as hard as that was back then for me, it was infinitely harder right. for them. And having been through it now as an adult, I get that. And uh, you know, I, I hate being the source of, of anybody's angst. And and you know, clearly I was, but it, it was not my doing. Uh your dad had a part in that. Tell me about Jack Buck. Tell tell me first and our listeners, Joe, about who he was professionally, for those who may not know. And then talk about him as a dad. Well, I'll tell you, he he was, I think he was one of the best to ever sit behind a microphone and maybe better when things went wrong or if there was a rain delay or if whatever was going on, he could just talk because he was a smart guy. He was in love with humanity and couldn't get enough of people. You know, if there was an empty bar and there was... 15 open seats, he'd go sit next to the one person sitting in that bar and get to know them. That's the kind of person he was, and he took those skills into his job, and that made him a great interviewer and a listener, uh, which is the key to all great interviews, is not, you know, having a a Mm pre-planned list of where to go is great, but more importantly, listening and, and really getting underneath what somebody's saying, I think, is what makes a good interview. And 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 that's what he was. So he was a, a great. He was a Hall of Fame baseball announcer, Hall of Fame football announcer, better guy, great after dinner speaker, uh, but a guy with a big generous heart that couldn't get enough of trying to help people. But he was also a human, you know. And and I think as these years roll on, I say a line in there about how you know their images, whether it's Harry Carey or my dad, or you know they get polished a little bit more yeah. to the point where you. 
you don't even really remember that they were flawed human beings like everybody else walking the earth. So um, I know he was an unhappy guy in the 60s. I know he met my mom, and that coincided with his career taking off, Harry Carey leaving St. Louis, the job really becoming Mm -hmm. his with the Cardinals. Um, And as a dad, he was somebody who, to me, was more my best buddy than my dad. And, you know, as I make – clear in the book, I was not a kid that was getting into a lot of trouble. A, I didn't want to embarrass him, and I knew eyes were on me when I was a kid. And B, I didn't want to waste the time that we had with him disciplining me. I, I thought, you know, I, I, I enjoyed him too much. I could make him laugh. He could make me laugh. I was one of the few people that could make him laugh. And uh, because of that, we just hung out more than anything, and and he wanted me with him on the road. And that was a, a great badge of honor that I carried with me and, and consequently really was entrusted with something that I didn't want to screw up because I wanted to go. And uh, and so he was a dad that was a buddy more than a, a, a father figure. We're, we're doing this recording at the KMOX studios and your dad was sports director down here for decades. He also was on the road 162 days a year following the Cardinals, doing the NFL, Hockey, I think, for a while. Yeah. The man did everything, and then he said yes to everything else. And when he's not live in front of someone, he's, like you said, at the bar trying to cheer up the guy by himself. Yeah. What's it like sharing your dad, your buddy, with everybody else? Well, A, I didn't know you – know, I keep doing A and B, but on, on one hand, I didn't know any different. You know what you know as a kid. So I guess everybody's dad does that. Well, they don't. But as a kid, that's what I thought. On the other hand, it was hard, you know, when he would be gone, you know, this was obviously way before cell phones mm-hmm. and the internet and all that stuff. So I didn't talk when he was gone, he was gone. And if I happened to be home at the time he called home once a day, well, then I got to talk to him. If not, I talked to him the next day or the day after. So then when he was home, it was like, okay, we finally got him. And then we go to dinner at Canetto's or someplace, you know, that we like to go as a family and, and, Inevitably, we'd be sitting with a Kiwanis Club guy who met my dad 15 years prior at a banquet <laughs> in Peoria. And, you know, then that guy's sitting with us. And it's like, Dad, we want to talk to you. And he never really got that. Did you ever say that? Um, No, I didn't. Again, because I don't know that I, I knew any different. And by the time it dawned on me that, man, I haven't seen this guy for a while. I'd love to just be alone with him. Uh, it was too late and, and I was kind of up and out and he was, you know, still doing his thing. So look, he's, he's the greatest man I got a chance to meet in my, and, and will ever meet in my life, but he, he wasn't perfect. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure you look at him as, as a perfect guy. And a lot of people in St. Louis look at him as a perfect guy. He was my dad. And, and I, I saw the good and the bad and, uh, the sum of all the parts, was a hell of a human being. At what age did you think, you know what, I want to be just like that? Man, I, I, I'd i be lying to you if, if the answer wasn't three. Because I knew when his voice got deep like mine is right now, you know, yeah, Joe to, actually sounds, he's got a very high-pitched yeah, voice. Like with, this. That's right. So this is all an act. All right. But I knew when he was serious on the phone that he was doing an interview. And when most kids are three and throwing crap around the room and whatever, being loud, I sat on the couch in his office and I was mesmerized by what he did. 
So did I want to be a baseball player? Yeah, like all kids want to be a baseball player. But did I want to be an astronaut? Did I want to be a cop? Did I want to be a lawyer? Did I want to be a doctor? No, I wanted to be my dad because I saw how much he loved what he did. And I think whenever any kid follows their parent into the profession, Mm -hmm. unless that's their only option, uh, I I think they do it because they see their parent really loves what they do and they want to – who wouldn't sign up for that? At age 23, you get the break of a lifetime. Fox shows up. Uh, Joe, when I'm 23, I'm finding my way home late from bars, and you are hopping on a flight to LAX to interview for the NFL gig. What's that anxiety? What's that opportunity like when you're a 23-year-old kid? Well, I grew up fast. You know, I left college to do the Cardinals, so I never graduated. And I went, I'd say, three years, maybe three full years. I used to think that I was 12 or 14 hours short, and then I went back and looked, and I'm like 20-something hours short of my degree. And at the time, it was like, do you want to stay at Indiana University and hope to someday get the Cardinal job? Or option B, do you want the Cardinal job? Well, only I think only an idiot would say, I'll stay here and hope I get it. Mm -hmm. You don't know when these opportunities are going to come. And I took it. um, And I'm glad I did. When you took it at that young age, did you feel like you were ready for it? I knew I was, I knew I could handle it, but I had put two years of minor league baseball in and I was prime picking for the local radio TV critic to just slam me. And that was hard. I mean, I I cried like a baby when the first article came out about me, about how awful it was that I got hired because of, you know, in some weird way, nepotism. It's not the exact definition of it, but it's pretty damn close. Mm -hmm. And so there I am, as you said, 23, flying to L.A., and I'm about to enter an adult's world because, you know, I, I was kind of faking it till I made it. Uh, as a football announcer, and that's what that Fox was looking for. And I went out there, and and I sat behind the console like this, and they put a headset on. They rolled a football game on a TV, and for the next half hour, if that, maybe it was only twenty minutes. Uh, my future was determined, and it was determined because I didn't vomit all over myself, and I I actually did a good facsimile of a football broadcast but had I just completely blown that I don't know I don't you know maybe I'm just I'm the cardinal announcer great that would be great but but as far as a network life if that 20 minutes didn't go well I'm probably not writing a book and and I'm not doing the world series so it it was intimidating but I I never let it overwhelm me to the point where I was paralyzed by it I I just did what I thought I needed to do, and for Fox, it was good enough, and I got hired and then moved up the ranks. Tell me the difference between doing radio and television. It's night and day. It's two different jobs. You know, uh, radio, it's all on you to paint, and you can put happy little trees over there and a nice little lake over here and an eagle wherever you want, and TV – I'm there to accent the action. Play-by-play announcer on TV is, by definition, redundant. I, you know, if the TV's showing a ground ball to the shortstop, I'm saying ground ball to the shortstop. Okay, yeah, we saw it. Unless somebody's visually impaired, which um, there are plenty of, of fans out there who I who would like me to be more descriptive on television because they can't really see what's going on. I, I'm there to to accent it. Jeter from the hole. <coughs> excuse me. Two out. Not 
Ground ball into the hole. Derek Jeter to his right. Backhanded pickup. Comes over the top. Throws. Just got him at first. But you don't need all that. The 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 picture tells you all that without the announcer going mm-hmm. on and on and on. So that that's that's really the way I most easily define it. But in 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 radio, you're on your own. I mean, there's no producer. There's no director. In TV, I've got somebody telling me what graphics package we're about to do. I've got a director showing shots. I've got to follow him. He's got to follow me. There's a lot more uh, choreography yes. in TV. Radio, you just turn the mic on and go. 95, I think, Fox picks up baseball. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have an opportunity to be their number one play-by-play, and you get seated next to a guy who you knew from years earlier named Tim McCarver. Tell us what that meant to you back then, both on the positive side, but also on the challenging piece. Well, the positive side was that I was with the best in the business, and I knew that. My dad knew that, and I think my dad was thrilled that he was my broadcast partner because I was 27, about to do, <laughs> excuse me, about to do a World Series. You can edit that out. Uh, and this is live, man. We're going with okay. this. And and so. I knew that I was covered no matter what happened on the field. Tim had either seen it, done it, broadcast it. There was nothing that was going to happen that uh, that could throw us as a tandem. The hard side of it was my dad and Tim did two years in 90 and 91, and it didn't go well. Now, people don't really remember that, but back at the time, my dad was nitpicked and basically run out of the booth by different critics across the country, a main guy in USA Today. And Tim was was kind of a part of that. Tim Tim was not playing nice with the other kids in the sandbox. And Tim was the the heavy hitter in that tandem. My dad was paired with him only because Musburger got fired before mm-hmm. the season started. And my dad wasn't really a TV guy. And he and Tim didn't get along great on the air. They were okay off the air, but my dad had a two-year deal and a two-year option, and after two years, they got rid of him and and went to Sean McDonough. And then here I was. That was 91. And then the first year of Fox Baseball after they got it in 95 was 96. And five years later, now Tim's my partner. But it went great. It went terrifically well. Tim and I never had a crossword. He was a great teammate. Did you clear the air? Or did you just step in saying, I'm not holding any grudges? That's well, the- yeah, both. I, I cleared the air, but I never really went into what I knew happened, which was when the question was asked of Tim, should we make a change? I know what Tim's answer was, and they made a change. Um, they wouldn't have made that change if Tim didn't sign off on it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's okay. But my dad's my own man is, is is his own man, and I'm my own. And and I said, Tim, we're going to be judged judged on how we are together, not how you were with my dad. I know I'm my dad's son, but I'm different than him. And let's see how it goes. And it could not have gone better. And I, my second marriage, he was one of my groomsmen. Hmm. But I and I would have never predicted that in 1995, 96. But thankfully, that's the way it went. And and I worked hard at that relationship. Your dad dealt with a lot of criticism that we in St. Louis never, I don't think, understood, but he certainly dealt with it. And uh, the criticism that he originally dealt with is now passed your way, whether that's five years old dealing with half siblings or uh, critics out of New York or wherever else they may be, or a 14 year old with a Twitter account. Off a couch, yeah. Or off a couch. And it's constant and it's getting louder, it seems, Joe. And it bothers you. 
You know, it bothers you then. I think it still bothers you today, and it should. It, it bothers me when I feel criticism. What do you think all that criticism really orbits around? And uh, and when you get it, what do you do with it? Well, yeah, that's. I could do a seminar on this, but uh, I think it, I think it revolves around a couple of things. One, I'm somebody's son who got into this business, and I think that on some level bothers a lot of people. I, now, my dad's been gone since 2002, and he never worked at Fox, and you know it, the logic doesn't really follow. But that's one of the criticisms that constantly hits me on Twitter. Um, two. <clears throat> when I show up in the postseason baseball, fans want to hear their announcers call the games. And when their announcers, A, not there, and B, the guy who's sitting there, whether it's me or whoever's going to follow me into this, is yelling when the other team hits a home run, they hate that. And and I, I get that as a fan because I'm a Blues fan. And when they got to the conference finals, I wanted John Kelly and Darren right. Pang to call the games. That's how I heard it all year, and I know they care like I care and they want the Blues to win. I I can't say that when the national guys show up, so I understand it. But it's louder because, as opposed to when my dad was doing it, with social media, you're 140 characters away. And um, how do I deal with it? Not well, to the point where I'm better if I just don't know about it or if I just don't dip my toe into the water mm-hmm. and, and open, you know, peel back the lid a little bit because – I'm not going to like what I see, and it shouldn't bother me. I've done it for a long time now. I do understand it, but still, it's death by a thousand cuts, no and and it 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 hits at your confidence. And so, as much as I can, I try to not go there. Um, but sometimes it's unavoidable, and then I have to swallow it. And believe me, when the game starts and the red light goes on, I'm ready, and I don't care about that stuff. But afterward. It, it gets to me, and, and it's too bad. It, it, I hate that about myself. You wrote, Joe, that your dad is beloved by all and you're known by all. Tell me about that. Well, I think when you're, you know, he, in St. Louis, there's a part of a highway named after him, <laughs> and, and it's a major highway. Right. Um, there's a statue of him down at the ballpark. His face is on the outfield There's wall. an O'Leary kid named there's after him. There's an O'Leary him. kid, yeah. All of that. And – that's because he was the voice of the Cardinals. And he his rooting interests were aligned with so many who couldn't get enough. Well, I've gone now to the national, to the dark side. And people hear me in an NLCS, Giants, Cardinals, yelling for the Giants guy. And they go, well, yeah, he left us behind. He doesn't love the Cardinals. How could he not? And it's not that. It's just not my job to do that. If I was doing the Cardinals rising and falling with their fortunes but that's I can't do it that way. So, uh yeah, he's beloved by an entire fan base, but it's not just because of the Cardinals. He did so much for charities. He met so many people. He went out of his way so many times that all that came back around to him. I try to do as much as I can, but I'm not the voice of the Cardinals. So I'm known, but I'm not in it for the love, and and if I am, then I'm going to be really unfulfilled because mm-hmm. that's just not going to happen. You talked in the book, you wrote in the book, I should say, about trusting yourself, and really trusting yourself in decisions like when you move from Cardinals to a more national scene, or trusting yourself in calls in the booth itself during the game time. Tell me about trusting yourself. 
I if I didn't trust myself, I'd be lost. And and if I listened to all that noise and let it really affect me, I'd never open my mouth. You know, it it gets to such a ridiculous extreme that you know you have to put it in its own bucket, kind of out here. But I trust myself that when the big moment comes, I'm going to say the right thing. And I haven't let myself down yet. Now maybe that's just around the corner, but. I'm prepared. I'm relaxed. I'm observant. And I trust that when the Cubs win their first World Series in 108 years, I'm going to say the right thing. And I don't have it scripted out. And I trust myself that when McGuire hits home run number 62, I'm going to say the right thing. Or when the Giants win the Super Bowl, I'm going to say the right thing. Or the Yankees return to greatness. Or Dustin Johnson wins the U.S. Open, I'm going to say the right thing. And and I know that all those critics and everybody they've got they're just sitting there. They, I've, mentally, I picture them just sharpening the knife, and and I trust myself to be better than that. And and if I didn't, I would be swallowed up. And I know I'm I'm good enough to handle all that. Your book, Lucky Bastard, certainly covers your your professional career, the fantastic stuff, but it also covers your personal life. And uh, there's a deeply emotional and challenging read part where you're at Indiana University and you're being interviewed for the really the first time, Joe, on your life. Not just, oh, look at all you've done, but your life. And you come home, you realize, my gosh, look at all these things. And you're excited to share this with your partner, your wife. And uh, tell me what happens. Well, she had just gotten back from a trip. She was, you know, a quote unquote girls trip, which when I was growing up, I don't remember a lot. My mom going on a lot of girls trips, but that's that's a part of of married life now, and and I th- I think it's it's a good thing. I mean, I'm glad when my wife gets out and has fun because I think she comes back a more relaxed, happier person. But she came back from a trip, and I came from a trip, and I was looking back. A, I hadn't been back to Indiana University since I left, and it was kind of overwhelming to go back to where I was the last time that I wasn't a professional. Mm-hmm. And see how much smaller this massive campus felt to me. And then to go through all these different moments and realize, you know, I have done some cool things. And I ha- I did leave here and accomplish some stuff as much as I want to downplay it. And I, I and then talking about my dad, I got I was on the stage being interviewed in front of a uh, an audience and I, I almost lost it. I almost got emotional and I had to catch myself a couple of times. And then I got home and my wife was tired and I was tired. And I said, let me tell you. And she said, well, let's just talk about it tomorrow. And we went to bed and she didn't want to hear about it. And I was like, okay, well then let's go to bed. And, and it was probably a selfish moment for me, but I I really wanted to share all that with her. But you know, that that's, I think not a unique story not at all with a husband and wife. And we had been going down that path. You know, she was my first ever girlfriend we dated throughout high school. There were some breakups in there, and I dated a couple of other people along the way. But for the most part, she was the constant girl in my life until her mom was diagnosed with cancer. She lost her mother while we were in college, and she really had nowhere else to go. And And I, we got married and started our life, and then we had kids young. And you know, I don't know that I knew who I was. I don't know that she knew who she was. And then eventually we looked at each other like, we're fighting too much, and and now that we know who we are, maybe we shouldn't be together. And that was hard, you know. And with kids, 
line up all the Super Bowls, all the World Series, whatever. There is no moment that's more nerve-wracking, harrowing, bring you to your knees, emotional, than having to sit down and tell your kids that you're moving out. And uh, I had to be the one to do it. I felt like the balance had flipped from it was more beneficial for us to be together for them to we're hurting them by being together. Thankfully, neither one of us ever strayed. There was nobody else involved. Mm -hmm. It was just between us. And, you know, that's hard. It's hard to cover that in the book because I would never do anything to my daughter's mom, my ex-wife, who I spent the majority of my young years with, that would embarrass them. But I, I also felt it would be disingenuous to write a book about my first 47 years and not add in divorce, which mm -hmm. was a big part of my life. And so I, I tried to take the high road and tread lightly, but it's in there. And and my thoughts on it and, and a lot of what I've talked about, you know, is is detailed in there. You were looking for a companion to really lean into, an advisor. And you write in the book, Joe, that it wasn't your mom or your sister or McCarver or anybody else who you really wanted to talk to was your dad, mm -hmm. no longer with us. You said you would have loved to have received his advice. What advice that night when you rolled over and Anne rolled over and you, you went to bed in your separate beds in some regards and then your separate lives afterwards, do you think your dad, who had been through such a similar journey in many regards, would have offered to you back then? I think he would have said, you better make yourself happy. And I, you know, there it's the tried and true therapist line of it's why they say in an airplane, make sure you put your mask on first before you put the mask on your child. Because if you're not right, you can't be your best to be the best for them. Now, it's hard to balance, I think, as, as a somewhat smart person, maybe I'm not, where you have to balance, am I being selfish or am I really doing the right thing here? Mm -hmm. And that's the question that I would ask my dad. But I know that when he was laying in, in the hospital bed in intensive care, and he said to me, and he couldn't talk at the time because he had a trach, um, which was like a Greek tragedy that my dad died without a voice. Mm. But he's mouthing to me, I hope when you have been sitting here night after night, you realize when you get to my position, it's too late. And you better live your life. You only get one life. You better do it the right way. You better have your fun, relax, because before you know it, you're going to be laying here. And uh, that hit me hard. And and it was from that point forward that I started to look at things differently. Like, I feel like I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, but am I doing what I should be doing? Mm -hmm. And sometimes those two things didn't match up. Your dad gave you countless gifts, obviously, but I'm going to go through a couple dates and uh, maybe this will trigger some memories. April 25th, 1987. He let me do an inning in the booth at Chase Stadium and I was in the back of the booth not paying any attention and I, he said now to take us through the fifth inning is my son, the birthday boy, Joe Buck, and I was pleading with him, <laughs> mouthing, don't do this, and he and Mike Shannon got up and left the booth and so the inning started and I ran down there and did it. And I think that was that was along the lines of trusting yourself. I, I think that was the first time that I, I when I went down probably three steps down to the front of that booth and did it, I had to trust myself that no matter how scared I was, 
it was on me to to describe that inning to Cardinal fans back in St. Louis, and it wasn't great, but I did. Yeah, rate your performance one to ten for an eighteen year old. Uh, three for an eighteen year old, it was it was a eight. It was an eight. There you go for a baseball announcer at the big league level. It was a two, <laughs> and and not passable. But he knew I could handle it because I grew up broadcasting games or describing games into a tape recorder. We'd listen to that tape on the way home when we were driving home, my dad and I. And it was like having a, a master's program in a Lincoln Mark VI. While we went home, he'd tell me stuff to work on and work on it the next night. And, uh, you know, that that's how I grew up. So he knew I could handle it. He wasn't trying to embarrass me. He was giving me a, a, gift. a, a gift and a taste, and, and that was a good taste. June 7, 1996. The birth of daughter number one. Um, and him, my dad, being on the road filling in for me by that point and hmm. me calling him in the middle of the night when this baby was born. He was out in San Diego and calling him at the crack of dawn in his hotel room. But being able to tell him that I was a father of a baby girl was something I'll never forget. And hearing the just raw joy in his voice, you know, as he was just opening his eyes for the first time that day. Um, yeah, I mean, it, you know, having a child changes everything and, you know, lets you know how vulnerable you are because you do anything mm -hmm. to protect that child. And it, it also brought a new level of understanding with, my dad and what he'd been through and how he loved my sister and me. And, you know, a lot of stuff changes when that baby comes out. And, and that was the first of two. About five years later, Joe, I had to do math on this one. So I may have missed it a little bit. But September 17th, 2001, six days after an event that changes yeah. uh, the world and certainly the U.S., uh, just a little context on this one. My wife, my my sister, not my wife, unfortunately, my <laughs> sister and I were planning to go to Europe on the 16th. We were going to go to Amsterdam and just kind of travel throughout Northern Europe. And of course, 9-11 shows up. Our flights get canceled. We have an opportunity to rebook. We pass on that. And instead, what we decide to do as siblings is drive down together to Bush Stadium and uh, we park and the entire time, we're very anxious because this is the first baseball game that Major League Baseball is playing after the attacks. And the only thing we know back then, really, is there is another attack coming. And what finer place to attack than a stadium full of Americans cheering for their team? And so there was a ton of anxiety that she and I felt and the other 50,000 felt walking into Bush Stadium. We sit down, and I'll let you take it from there. I felt the same anxiety driving down, and I was a young father, and I thought, <clears throat> I'm, I'm in harm's way. As silly as that kind of seems now, but back then it was like you're waiting for the other shoe right. to drop. And, you know, thankfully for the most part, the other shoe hasn't dropped, which is remarkable. But being in that stadium, you know, my dad was going to recite a poem that, that he had written about the attacks on the U.S., and... He was writing a lot of poetry at the end of his life, and some of it was really great. Some of it was so corny, it was unbelievably bad. And he would always run them past me, and I'd be like, eh, <laughs> no, try again. And, you know, he was proud of it all, but some of it was not good. 
But this one was really good, and and this one was really personal to him because he had been in World War II, and he was a Purple Heart recipient, or earner is probably a better word, and you know was at Remagen in Germany and injured with shrapnel and had lived through a war, and now this was an attack on on his homeland. And so he wrote this poem, and he was in the throes of Parkinson's and shaking and I said, Dad, don't go down there and do this because he was going to read it to the crowd. And he said, I want to do this. And I said, Dad, you're shaking. You're emotional. You're going to cry. And I just I was scared for him because I thought if he starts crying and he's emotional and he's weakened, it's not going to be good. And he he put his paper down and he put his finger in my face and he said, I will not cry. And I said, you're going to cry. He said, I will not cry. I'll bet you $100. I said, all right, you're on. Since this nation was founded under God more than 200 years ago, we have been the bastion of freedom, the light that keeps the free world aglow. We do not covet the possessions of others. We are blessed with the bounty we share. We have rushed to help other nations, anything anytime, anywhere. War is just not our nature. We won't start, but we will end the fight. If we are involved, we shall be resolved to protect what we know is right. We have been challenged by a cowardly foe who strikes and then hides from our view. With one voice we say, we have no choice today. There is only one thing to do. Everyone is saying the same thing and praying that we end these senseless moments we are living. As our fathers did before, we shall win this unwanted war and our children will enjoy the future will be giving. It was a big step for baseball, and the commissioner mm-hmm. called him and thanked him because it was kind of like sanctioning it was okay to be back watching a baseball game after all these yeah. horrific moments. And while he's reading the poem, he's doing it defiantly almost to me up in the booth, and I'm the one crying in the booth watching him. And he came up and he put his hand out, like, give me the hundred. And I just smacked his hand. So he died with me owing him a hundred dollars. Well, uh, I'm here to collect it. Yeah, okay. Good. So that's what this whole interview is actually setting up. I don't have it. Uh, you cried, so did everyone watching. And it's a video that, if you've Googled it lately, it's it's still going viral, still touching lives. This this stoic, heroic poem from an American hero. Your dad, my friend, Jack Buck. It's an incredible. I, I, I said to him <laughs> after that, I don't know if it was the next day or I don't think it was that night. I think it was the next day or the day after. I said, you know, in some weird way, everything you've done growing up in the Depression, going to World War II, going to college on the GI Bill, working your way up to the big leagues, Mm -hmm. building up your name and doing it the right way and all these charities and all these different works that you've done and, and being tireless and so generous led up to that moment because it gave him the gravitas and the uh, the ability to speak on behalf of all of us. 
and and it was a big moment in baseball and and in some weird way a big moment in our history because baseball was the the great american pastime again and it got everybody's minds for 3 hours off all the awful things that were going on and body recovery and the world trade center and obviously what went on at the pentagon and in that field in pennsylvania well your dad had parkinson's disease and i don't even know joe if you know but my own father has it so every time I would see your dad shaking or uh, the mouth pulling down in one direction or another, I would think also of my own dad, who is still alive, who still has a goofy grin that I remember well in your own father's face. Sure. And that that intense courage that it takes for a guy with Parkinson's disease or any challenge to show up allows him also the ability to grab the microphone and speak. And I, for me, he represented what we all were longing for that day. We heard it from Giuliani a couple of days before that. We heard it from Bush with the megaphone, but we heard it most clearly, I think, from your dad. Yeah, and and as far as the Parkinson's is concerned, you know, he 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 did have such a strength, and he didn't care. His his thing was, you know, let them worry about me shaking. I'm not going to worry about it. And I, as his son or my mom, you know, we'd sit off to the side and he'd be signing autographs or doing an interview with somebody and having a tough time keeping the microphone in front of his face and then mm-hmm. in front of their face. That was hard for us. But for him, he was like, let's go, line it up. And it was a, a great study and strength for me that that I'll have with me for the rest of my life. Let's go. So we'll, we'll end with this final day, June 18th, 2002. Uh, I believe it's the end of a seventh-month fight. Your dad's been in the hospital battling cancer, battling Parkinson's disease, and everything else that the man's going through. Take us through some of the events that have led up to that date, and then specifically, Joe, um, what you recall. Well, obviously his health had been deteriorating, but he initially went into the hospital at Barnes with lung cancer, and it was down in, in the lower lobe of his lung. And he did, of course, as only he would do, a banquet at the MAC, left with my mom and went from the MAC to Barnes and checked in. And the next day they took they l- took this lump of his lung out and it went well. I mean that it was contained. It wasn't like we're going to put him through chemotherapy right. and radiation. It's like we're just going to take it out. It's in a place where we can take it out. And so they did. And about a week later, maybe even less, he developed this terrible uh infection. So he had to go back in. Now, here's a guy with Parkinson's. Here's a guy with diabetes. Here's a guy with a pacemaker. Here's a guy with so much wrong that he couldn't heal. So what killed him was the infection. Not Now, it started, Mm -hmm. the first domino was the lung cancer. But the infection got him. So he goes back in. And it was at the time when the Rams were in the Super Bowl against the Patriots, and I was sitting there with him, and he kept repeating himself. And I thought, something's not right. And I went running. At one point, he just he couldn't get breath, and he was dying in front of me. Ran and got the nurse. St. Louis was in the Super Bowl, so the floor was basically empty. They come running down. They save his life. I'm not sure that was the best thing that could have happened because then he laid there for seven months uh, or six by that point, but he'd already been in uh, and and was dying and was just – being ravaged by infection, couldn't eat, couldn't, he just was off. And at one point I went in and and he couldn't talk. And this is 
all in there. I, I went in and he couldn't speak, but he, I could read his lips. And he said, will you do me, he was mouthing this to me, will you do me a favor? And I said, yeah, sure. He said, will you do me a favor? That was, that was new with Sirius then, yeah. He said, will you let me die? And I said, dad, I know you're disappointed. I know you're frustrated, but we're coming out of the woods here. And he was like, no, 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 no. Will you let me die? I said, I'll make this deal with you. If in two weeks this isn't better, then we'll talk about that. And he kind of gave me a hand like, ugh, get out of here. So we talked for a little while and I left. Well, within that time, then it started to become reality. And the head of Barnes came into me, this guy Steve Miller, and said, look, we'll keep your dad as comfortable as we can for as long as you want. But I'm telling you as your friend, he's not getting out of here. So you need to think about how to end this. And we did. So we picked that date. That was which was the day that he died, June 18th. Right. The 17th, I think, is the date you guys chose, thinking Dates, it would be quick. Right. And it wasn't. He stayed alive the entire day. So they pull all this junk out of him. Mm-hmm. He hadn't breathed on his own in seven months, in essence. And he sat there and, and laid there. Everybody's waiting in the room. I didn't go. I had said my goodbyes the night before. And he lives the entire day. And then the game starts, and I go down to do the Cardinals and Angels, and they pull the TV by his head, and that's on. He's listening to me do the game. And then I'm driving home, and the hospital room's finally empty. And I promised myself the night before I wasn't going to go back, Mm -hmm. but I did. It was on my way home. And I pulled in. I went into his room. It was quiet. Two nurses got up and left. No beeping, no anything, except you knew that you could see his heart rate. And I leaned in. I said my goodbyes. I told him that I had everything covered. It was okay to go and that I would protect mom and I would make sure Julie was good and everything was handled and that I loved him. He was my best friend. I kissed him on the forehead and I walked out. And by the time I got to my car, he was dead. And I, if maybe I'm nuts, but I feel like he waited for me to come by to say goodbye. And you know, I, I did. I'm glad I did. Um, I joked with somebody the other day, maybe if I hadn't ever gone by, he'd be alive today. But Dang, uh, it'd be nice to have that voice still. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, that was a special, another gift that he gave me. And that's how our relationship was. You know, he was my best friend. And, um, you know, I. Decades that, or before that, Joe, dad's putting on a tie. And I think he's getting ready to go to his own mother's funeral. My my mom's dad's funeral. Your mom's dad's funeral. And uh, he looks at you, and he can see your little mind is working, and he knows what's going on, and he says to you something along the line of, you'll be ready for it. I know what you're thinking. When right. the time comes, you'll be ready for it when your own dad is is gone. that Those were his prescriptive wor- words four decades earlier. When your yeah. dad passes, when he dies, were you at all ready for it? Yeah, I was. And and I never had understood people when they said, well, it was time or, well, they're in a better place. And I was like, yeah, but dead is dead. You know, they're gone. But it, it, was, it was past time. His brother had come into town and looked at him and right. thought, oh my God, you know, what, what, what's happened here? And you don't realize it when you're seeing it every day, but he showed up and he was like, no, this has got to end. And so it was beyond time for him to go. And he went out with the needle on empty. I don't think there's anything he wanted to do, including skydiving at the age of 75, that he didn't do. 
And, uh, you know, we should all be so lucky to live a life like that. It didn't end pretty, but we all got a chance to say goodbye. And, you know, uh, again, I there were times in that hospital where it wasn't pleasant for him. But for the rest of us, I think we all kind of, in our own way, got past having Jack Buck in the world. And, and by the time it was time for him to go, he went. And then I had to shift gears and become the MC and MC his wake at Bush Stadium and speak at his funeral. And How old were you? Uh, 33 and, uh, just turned 33 and, uh, I was ready. Yeah, I was ready. And I'm, I, I only cried once after, and I'm an easy cry like him, but I only cried once after he passed away. And that was when I went to visit my grandma, my mom's mom, and she was dying and I was in her room and I just let it go. Mm -hmm. But I never really emoted even to this day about it because he's kind of alive with me as I'm sure he is with you uh, to this day. I get a story a day, it feels like. And uh, he touched a lot of lives and, and I'm I'm beyond it to the point where I look back and I think everybody should be so lucky to have mm-hmm. a dad slash friend like I had in him. Me too. Yeah. Let's talk about another time you did cry. This should be the last cry of the, the interview. 44th birthday. Your daughter, Trudy, paints uh, some words on canvas that matter greatly to you. And I'm going to read them so I get them all right, Joe. Uh, the words are these. Why is a kid still in college showing up on what people consider the premier local team network in all of baseball? The reason is simple, and it's spelled B-U-C-K. Trudy gives this to you, and she thinks it's the highest compliment anyone has ever said about you. And she's right in some regards. But tell me why these words on that canvas mean even more to you today. Because that was the that was the main criticism that was leveled at me when I got hired at the age of 21 by Dan Caesar, who now is a great friend uh, of the Post-Dispatch, still doing that job. But back then, it was nepotism. This is insulting to Cardinal fans. And the reason is B-U-C-K. That's why. So that was a criticism. Well, my daughter read it X number of years later, and she went, yeah, of course, it's <laughs> right. Buck. And and that's, you know, she thought it was, she she read it somewhere and put it on a canvas because she thought, what a great compliment, and you should have it on your wall. And it's like out of the mouths of babes. Right on. It was like, oh, my God, you know what? Yeah. It she's may right. have been my favorite part of your entire beautiful book. Yeah, I mean it. It was thanks. so stunning how a child saw the exact same words you shared chapters earlier that were so critical, and she saw only the good. And they made me cry, and then they made me cry. <laughs> I cried because they hurt, and I cried because they felt good. And they felt good because it was a gift from my daughter, and she saw it as a compliment. So, my God, you know, it's it's just one of the most ironic twists of this weird professional life I've led, but it was a good reminder that I'm lucky to be named Buck. And that's why lucky, if I were to redo the cover of my book, the word lucky would be a lot bigger font than the word bastard. Um, I am lucky and and I'm smart enough to know it. You have two tattoos. I think one of them is a butterfly in your lower back. <laughs> no. Oh, it's not. No, not the one I got in Puerto Rico on uh, spring break so 87. You do have two tattoos. They speak sayings that matter to you. Tell me what they are and one tell me is, why they matter. One is bastante, 
uh, which is I, I love Mexico. I have a place in Mexico, so it's a Spanish word for enough. And it was along the lines of what we talked about earlier with the criticism, enough. I'm, I'm not worried about it. I'm, I've had enough of it. Uh, on the other hand, I, enough. I can't love my kids enough. I can't be close enough to them. I can't get enough of them. Mm-hmm. The other arm, it says, so what? And that was a two-word phrase that my dad gave my mom on a bracelet when all of this happened and I was on the scene and then my sister and there was a lot of animosity with my dad's larger family. And his words to her were, if they're not nice to you, if people are talking about us, so what? And I wish I, even though they're tattooed on me, Mm -hmm. I wish I took more stock in, in what the message is because I should live more so what? And I think everybody needs a little so what in their lives. You know, everybody's so tight and mm-hmm. ready to be mad. And we all need to take a breath and, and have a little so what. And it's going to work out. What's the worst that can happen? And, you know, you personally have been through hell and have come back and made this great career. And I, I think anything that comes along, you can turn into a positive. And you're going through it, so what? You'll get through it. And if you don't, you don't. But that's how my dad lived, and that's how I need to be more uh, as I go through the next couple decades of my life if I'm so lucky. Joe, we have, when we bring guests in, we always ask them the same seven live-inspired questions. So you will be following in the footsteps of Dave Ramsey and and other great leaders and thinkers. And uh, I'm excited to share questions with you and then hear your answers to them. Number one, what's the best book you've ever read? A Prayer for Owen Meany. Tell me about it. By John Irving. Uh, it's kind of this, it was bastardized, not to use that word again, in uh, in a movie called Simon Birch. And and if anybody's seen the movie, give the book a chance because it's not <laughs> even close. But it's about, the writing is brilliant. I mean, John Irving, I, I, everything right. he writes, just the crafting of sentences and the story is just genius. But in a, in a short word, it's about, a young boy who's a misfit who ends up saving an entire school bus filled with drowning children. And what happens in between when you're introduced to this little freakishly small, high-pitched voiced kid to when he does this mm. and what they do in their lives, these two best friends, they never know why. It's it's They're touched by God, and they don't know why they're practicing this play this basketball play, it sounds insane as I say it out loud, but it it's inspired and there's a divine touch to it to where this basketball play they've always practiced actually leads them to the exact movements they need to make to save this drowning bus full of kids. And it's just when it comes full circle, I've now ruined the ending for anybody who's going to read the book, <laughs> uh, you're just like, oh, my God. that was I, It was one of those books where – you read one page. I relegated myself to one page a day because I didn't want it to end. Mm-hmm. That's how beautiful the writing was to me. Tomorrow, you discover that your wealthy uncle has shockingly died at 103, leaving you Joe Buck with millions. What would you do with it? Well, I mean, I, I think the the right answer is you donate that to charities of your choice. I've been tied in with children, St. Louis Children's Hospital, but I, I think there's so much poverty in the world and so many. Right now, as we sit here in 2016, what I would do 
is try to come up with something to better open the dialogue between law enforcement and inner cities. However, that would have to happen. You know what the the stuff that Colin Kaepernick's talking about, but but take my own twist on it, and mm-hmm. and I just think without law enforcement, we're lost. Uh, there's obviously a need for this dialogue to be open. I don't know what it's like to live in an inner city. I don't know what it's like to mistrust the police force. It must be an awful feeling. Um, so educating and and talking, how that's where I would put my money these days. And and all the while helping Children Hospital, but mm-hmm. but I, I don't want to buy anything that I don't have, or I you know maybe a plane just to help me get to and from my home for all these different events. But beyond that, I I think I'd try to help other people. This one's going to hit close to home for both of us because I know your mom went through it and the O'Leary's have been through it twice. But here we go. If your house caught fire and all the living things, all the living people were out and you had an opportunity, Joe, to grab one item from inside that house, what would you grab? What's that important to you that you would go back into a home and grab? Nothing. There's not one thing. Really? And I, I learned that the hard way with my mom. And she, you know, she was worried about my dad's memorabilia and all that stuff. I for some reason that stuff doesn't mean anything to me. <coughs> and when she was in harm's way, it wasn't like the house caught fire and she just calmly walked out. Right. It was one of those panicked. It was this thing's really on fire. The fire department came and opened the door, and there was a backdraft that shot him across the driveway. So it was like you could die. Is there a picture that I have to have? That is there a letter that I have to have? That if it's that important to me, I've got it in my mind. And if it's if it's not that important to me, there's nothing I would go back in and and save. Maybe. Maybe a painting of my two daughters that I would that I would be really upset if if that moment that they're captured in their young lives was mm-hmm. lost forever. But as I sit here and say it, I can picture it in my mind. I don't need to hold it. Um, and and I said to my mom, you know, I'll make that trade every day. I'll trade everything that's in that house mm-hmm. for you. And so as long as everybody gets out, let it burn. Joe, if you had an opportunity to sit on a bench overlooking a beach on a gorgeous day and have a conversation with anyone, living or dead, who would you choose? Well, again, as we sit here 14 years after my dad dying, I, I'd love to sit and talk with him. I, I would love to I'd love to kind of go back if I can take the liberty with your question and know my dad as a contemporary. I'd love to I'd love to see him in his 40s, which I didn't really know him in his 40s. I'd love to see him in his 30s. I'd like to know what he was like when he was in World War II and mm-hmm. if you were in a foxhole next to him or if you were on an airplane coming back from the war, what it was like to sit next to Jack Buck before he was Jack Buck. I'd love to see what kind of a guy. I have a feeling we'd be best friends, but I'd love to experience that. But I, I think I would sit there and take stock of what I've done and who I am and what I've tried to carry forward and how I've tried to improve on all that I saw from my dad and, uh, you know, tell him again, thank you and and see what he had to say to me as he's been watching me for the last 14 years. What's the best advice, Joe, that he or anyone else ever gave you? Professionally, it was, there's nothing you can say that's more 
impactful than a loud crowd. Hmm. Meaning Cubs win the World Series or if the Indians had won the World Series and progressive field is shaking to its girders, just shut up and let let the thing shake and let people hear that. I, I, that was always something that uh, that he talked to me about and something that I, I tried to do and still do to this day. Personally, it's just the golden rule. It's do unto others. Treat people when nobody's watching. Treat people how you would want to be treated. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter what they do. And he treated the elevator operator at Bush Stadium the same way he treated the commissioner of Major League Baseball. Right. And it didn't matter if anybody was watching or not. He was that good of a person with that big of a heart. And you, you don't write about it in the book, but it's good I think that you hear this. When I travel around, I hear that exact same news about your dad. But I also get it from you, Joe. So sometimes behind you in the makeup chair, I sit. Or behind the cameraman, I follow. And uh, I just think it's important that in addition to all those important tweets you get from 15-year-old kids telling you that your hair stinks, right? that you also realize you are positively impacting all the lives that you bump into. Well, I've so. never had to worry. Thank you. I've never had to worry about the second half of the sentence when somebody said, oh, you're Joe Buck. You're Jack Buck's son. Right. Yeah. I, hey, I worked with your dad back in 1988. And- and I, I know something great's coming, and and that's a that's a that's a good feeling. What would you tell your twenty year old self? It's going to be a hell of a ride, um, and keep doing what you're doing, and be confident in who you are. I mean, I think when you grow up a fat kid, <laughs> and you get made fun of in the playground on the playground, that stuff doesn't ever really go away. And you realize what bullying, why that is such a big deal. But I'm not the most confident person in the world. And I don't know who is. I mean, maybe that person would be detestful if, you know. But it would have been, you're going to have a great life and enjoy it mm-hmm. while you're going through it. And, and quit grinding over everything because I have a tendency to grind. Final question, my friend. Okay. It's been said that all great people, and in this case, also great announcers, can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you want your one sentence to read? He was a great father and a good family person and cared more about others than he did himself and didn't take himself too seriously. I mean, that that probably wouldn't fit in a tweet, but <laughs> I could I could cut down words and make it fit. But I, I think... You know, I, I if if there's one thing I leave this world with, I hope it's making it a little bit better by the two kids that I've raised to this point, and that's way more important than some home run call or mm-hmm. who wins the Super Bowl. That stuff fades away. Nobody, it's it's fleeting, but putting two productive, well-intentioned young women into this world, I think, will be the best part of me and the rest of it doesn't really matter. Joe Buck, I wrote a book about eight months ago called On Fire, but it could have easily been titled Lucky Bastard (laughs) because on January 17th, I did something ridiculously crazy. I, I created an explosion. I blew myself up. I changed my life and I should have died. And on January 18th, as I'm laying in a hospital bed, dying on a trach in darkness, doubled in size due to swelling, 
the toughest journey imaginable ahead of us, your dad walks in. The only voice outside of my mom and dad's that actually would have awoken me from the misery that I was laying in. I, I was so fortunate to have your dad come in on the 18th, again on the 19th, during the weeks and months that followed. I was lucky to call him my friend. Lucky to receive 60 baseballs from your dad teaching me how to write again. Lucky to receive his Hall of Fame crystal ball when I graduated college. And now I feel very lucky to call his son, Joe, B-U-C-K, my friend. So, Joe, thank you for being on Live Inspired with us. Well, let me tell you, my dad would be more proud of who and what you are, much more so than anything he accomplished. That I know. That I know that nothing would move my dad more than to see what you've become and how you've carried your message. And so you've taken that opportunity and made more of it than he could have ever imagined. So thank you for all you do. So my friends for this time and until next time, that was Joe Buck. This is live inspired with John O'Leary and this is your day live inspired. Well, thanks for joining me today on this live inspired podcast. If you go ahead and check in the show notes, you won't want to miss it because we're going to have links to the Hall of Fame address that Jack Buck gave when he was inducted into the Hall of Fame. He'll reference Joe. He'll also reference a nine-year-old boy recovering in St. Louis, Missouri, a little guy named John O'Leary. So you'll want to check that out. We'll have a link to Joe's new book, Lucky Bastard. It's a bold read. Uh, There are some things in there shared that I don't think Joe has told anybody, and now he's telling each of us. It's worth, I think, checking out. You'll want to certainly check it out for yourself. We'll have links to Joe's social media handles, including our own. We'll have an opportunity for you to share the good news about this podcast. So, my friends, if this episode has meant as much to you as it has to me in producing it, please take a few seconds and rate the show. Review this podcast This is a quick way that helps get the word out. Although the show is still just launching and it's climbing the charts. It went up as high as number 18 on iTunes business. It's touching lives all around the world. But you, my friends, can help us touch and inspire and impact even more lives. So rate the show, leave your comments, tell your friends, and let's create a movement of individuals living inspired. So for this time... And until next time, this is John O'Leary, and this is your day. Live inspired.